Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Peter Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy. And, uh, well, the Admiral of Art Labels, uh, so fun. I-, I get a chance to meet so many fun people in the industry, whether it's on the phone. Uh, of course, I get to, to meet them through their passion, whether it's uh, cider, or beer, or uh, wine, spirits, cocktails, food, and, and uh, writing, journalism, art. Uh, and today, I've got uh, Tom Rodriguez. He's down in California, and he's, uh, he's got a cool uh, talent. He's an artist, and he's a winemaker, and he's actually done some amazing labels. Let's get right to it. Hey, Tom Rodriguez, welcome to Happy Hour. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you. So um, where are you right now? I am in the Yorkville Highlands of Mendocino County, which is the southern end of Anderson Valley. Excellent. In the southern part of uh, Mendocino County. So fun. I was just so. studying Mendocino, so it's Anderson, Cole Ranch, uh, Colvelos, uh, Dos Rios, Mendocino Ridge. Uh, oh, there's a Fort Ross. There is a Fountain Grove. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that stuff. And then, of course, where you're at, Yorkville. Uh, pretty neat. Uh, you started being yeah. an artist early on. I know we all did, right? Whether it's uh, mud pies or writing on the walls in Mom's house or <laughs> coloring books. How did you get started? Well, actually, when I was born this way. Um, I, <laughs> when I was in kindergarten, I was drawing, and my teacher was looking over my shoulder, and she goes, Oh, Tommy, that's Art Nouveau. So I turned around thinking there's some dude named Art behind me, because what six-year-old knows what Art Nouveau is? <laughs> but it turns out it was a style in which I was uh, doodling and drawing it as a, as a child. Did so you... I always felt I was an artist. I always felt I was going to be an artist. Um, my parents wanted me to go to college and do other things, and uh, I had a chance to play pro ball, but I, the art was just inside me, and it was my passion, and I, and I had to do it. So I've been doing it now for 51 years. Wow. Well, quickly, what, what sport were you playing pro ball in or had a chance to? Well, I wasn't pro. I mean, I was invited to go to uh, uh, the, uh, play baseball okay. at the New York Met and, and in high school in 1972. Um, but I had already started my own business, and I was doing pretty well. And I thought, well, geez, I'll take a year off. Well, you can't do that. No. And uh, at the time, I was a catcher, and catchers have a pretty good opportunity if you can hit the ball. That was a line drive hitter at the time, but I, I really had trouble with the curveball. And, you know, uh, Gary Carter was the, uh, was the same era as me, and he became the catcher of the Giants. And so I don't think I probably had the talent to go pro. I mean, that's the cream of the crop. Right. But I, I went on to play baseball up until a couple of years ago. I played in the men's senior league for many years, and, and uh, I, I just I love the game. Still, still playing catcher? Well, I was a catcher, pitcher, and middle infielder okay. in, in, my, in the senior league. Yeah. So you got some good knees. You can still be doing that stuff. So fun. I got good knees, but I'm feeling my hips, man. I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's why we've got Resveratrol to help us with all that. So um, let's talk about this Art Nouveau. Did, do you remember being exposed to some of that style, or did you see some posters, or is it just maybe in the uh, the ether that you this is how you expressed yourself? I think it was in the ether. I think that uh, I did some psychic work in the 70s, and 
I went to the Psychic Institute in Berkeley, and uh, I did had some past life readings, which was against my total upbringing. I was raised in a, a Catholic family, but uh, <laughs> um, anyway, the guy had told me, he said, this is your third life as an artist, and and uh, I've spent one life as a nun, and and I believe in that kind of stuff. I think we use very little of our brain power, and, and women have it naturally. It's called women intuition, but it's basically psychic energy, in my opinion. Wow. So I feel comfortable with it. It's never been... I'm a self-taught painter and illustrator. Um, I learned the craft of doing glass first, um, but it's been something that's just been a part of me, and, and I, it just comes out of me sometimes. So I'm I'm, I'm I'm very gifted, and I've been gifted to live my passions my whole life, which is great. Are you good at jigsaw puzzles or uh, crosswords? Because when I think of glass, uh, you know, stained glass artwork, it's really something that you have to envision. Of course, then you do your map and you lay it all out, but uh, it just seems like you might have some of those uh, those talents in other uh, areas. Well, let me put it this way. It took me two times to go through algebra, and I flew through geometry. So <laughs> I'm good with space division, but I'm dyslexic. Ah. I signed my name M O T until the third grade because I saw it as T O M, but I actually wrote it as M O T. So it's um, I'm good with with uh, space and and putting things together. So jigsaw puzzle, yes. Scrapple, no. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, I get that. That's great. Well, you followed your passion, you followed your strength, which makes total sense. Let's talk about yeah. um, some of the early on uh, uh, you. We said you were into music as well, or I, I know off off offline. Well, no, I when I um, I graduated high school, I went, grew up in Los Gatos, California, uh, which was a farming community. My family were from the Azores and uh, Portuguese fruit farmers. Both grandparents made wine, so that's how I got started in wine early on. And um, I moved to Marin County in 1973 as a glass artist and opened up my business. And I did a commission for a gentleman whose name is Bob Gordon who happened to be um, Janis Joplin's executor and also was a rock and roll attorney. And he opened the doors for me um, in the music industry in the early 70s in Marin County. So I did a bunch of work for the Doobie Brothers and Journey and guys that... uh, Journey, um, too, man. Right on. I can see that. I can totally see that. Steve Steve Terry and I became fast friends when uh, he uh, moved forward to the late 80s. He um, um, he loved Farniente wine, and that was my first label I did. And and he wanted to. He was on his own now. He left Journey, and he was going to do a single, uh, or come out with his first single album. And he wanted me to do his album cover. And I was actually in Hawaii at the time. And my printer, who was working in my studio, called me, and she said, uh, "Hey, um, I got this guy who wants to do uh, do a uh, album cover." And I said, "Who is it?" And she goes, "Steve Perry." And I stopped listening to music when I heard Pink Floyd in 19, so I don't know, whenever it was, when he came out with Dark Side of the Moon, I think it was 71 or 2, something like that. <laughs> so I was working all the time. I didn't follow the music scene that much. And so anyway, long story short, um, I got home. Steve and I got together. It turns out his family are from the same Azor- Azorian Islands my family are. Wow. And we hit it off, and, and we became fast friends and and uh, hung out together for a number of years until he went sober, and then <laughs> I bought a winery, and he went sober. So you can't hang out with the, yeah. the uh, people you partied with. So anyway, <laughs> uh, it was a fun trip. But that's uh, how I got into the uh, the music scene was um, just through my artwork. So fun speaking with Tom Rodriguez, who is uh, well a master of art and a master of wine in some respects. He has a label called Art Divino, and uh, this is based down in Mendocino County. Let's talk about your winemaking chops. Um, where did you learn to make wine? 
Well, I started collecting wine. I grew up with wine as a kid, you know, being served in on Sunday dinners. And then uh, after high school, I started collecting wine, and mostly French wine at the time. I love sure. Burgundies, Chardonnays, and I love Bordeaux style. So I would study the, the um, weather patterns in France, and I would buy futures on warm years because the France, uh, France uh, um, they have a much yes. uh, cooler climate and a shorter season. Right. So they have higher acids, lower pH, and, which is the opposite of us. We have higher pHs and lower acids. So if they had a warm year, then that was going to be an excellent vintage. And I actually did better doing that than I ever did in the stock market. And uh, so it, <laughs> that's how I got started in, you know, the collect- I was a collector for more than 35 years before I became a winemaker. And then, um, so after about a 29-year career in Marin as an artist, I, my daughter was going off to college. I was a single dad. And I thought, well, it's time to move. And I love to ride motorcycles in Highway 128 where I live. It was one of my favorite roads. It's 56 miles from Cloverdale to the coast of twisty turns and beautiful country, vineyards, the hills, redwoods in the coast. And I found this place for sale. And so I uprooted in um, Marin and moved out here and uh, became fast friends with a guy by the name of Kerry Damsky, who's an enologist for about 40 years now. And he's the same age as I am. And, and so I hired him as a consultant because uh, – I didn't show up to my chemistry class in high school. I was like, I'm an artist. What do I need chemistry for? <laughs> well, little little did I know at 47 I was going to become a winemaker, and chemistry is really important. Ah, yeah. So, Terry and I have been working together for 19 years now, and, and he's taught me the chemistry part, and the farming part came from my grandfather. He always told me, get your fruit ripe, and the rest is easy. Well, he was half right. <clears throat> Getting the fruit ripe was the first and most important thing, because with winemaking, 80% of it's in the vineyard. And the most important part of winemaking is choosing the day you harvest the fruit. Sure. Because it doesn't change after that. So, um, in a nutshell, that's sort of how it all happened. And uh, this is 19 years later. I'm pushing out some uh, great Pinots and Chardonnays and Zinfandel. Uh, we grow a couple of uh, hybrids here, Symphony and Flora. That's where you see David's hybrids. Um, hmm, Symphony, and, yeah, I know that um, Yeah, Symphony is a... Grasgri Muscat hybrid, and Flora is a Gewurz Semillon hybrid. So it's been fun, man. I've really enjoyed the ride. It's a lot of work. Um, in today's uh, political environment, it's very difficult because of the immigration laws sure. and the tariffs and things like that are making it harder for the small businessman. Um, but that's a whole nother show, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for a little political bent, which uh, we'll try to keep it easy. You know, wine brings everyone together, we like to say, or, or whatever it might be. Well, we need more of that, man. Uh, we for, need more of that. <laughs> for sure. We all need to be a that's, little bit more together. Than, you know, that might be one of the things about Muslims, man. <laughs> <laughs> to relax and have a glass of wine. Well, I'm sure they do, you know. Uh, it's okay. Hey, so I'm looking at this label. It says Art of Vino. It's very pretty. It's definitely Art Deco or, or um, Renaissance, if you will, uh, with the, the soft, rounded. Um, uh, you've got grapes on here, and it does remind me very much of Farniense, and you did those labels as well. Um, what year did you did you help uh, uh, Gil Nickel with the Farniense label? Well, his first vintage was the Chardonnay in 1979. So that's 40 years ago this year that that label came out. And then a couple of years later, he came out with the Cabernet, and I did that one. And then a few years later, he came out with Dolce, which was the Sauternian-style dessert wine. Sure. And then he opened up another winery a few years after that called Nickel Nickel. Yep. And then he went into Sonoma County and started making Pinot, and he calls that one En Route. And then just recently, 
passed away in 2003. Yeah. But uh, just a couple of years ago, I did their latest venture, which is called Bella Union, which is an Oakville cap Bordeaux style wine. I've actually heard of that. Pretty cool. Uh, we got to take yeah. a break here in a few moments. But um, when you think about art and and are you how are you addressing or how are you approaching this idea of a Chardonnay label? I mean, what do you look to uh, Burgundy? But it's so different. I can't imagine that that's an inspiration. Well, you know, back in the, in the seventies uh, when I first did the Farniente label, which has been considered the, the label that has changed changed modern day label design. Um, all labels would look pretty French, you know. It was a rectangular label. There was uh, the name of the vintner, the vintage date, a little rendering of the building, and the alcohol content in the appellation. Sure. And that was it. It was very simple. Um, so no one had really done a die cut. No one had done gold borders and embossing. And all that type of stuff was... In fact, the printer I used in Marin County at the time was Gordon Graphics. And... They were up for the challenge, but it took seven passes through the press to produce that first label. With all the different and, colors uh, and design, yeah. Yeah, and the different, you know, the die cut was one pass. The embossing was another pass. The foil was another pass. The four-color um, press uh, reproduction was another pass. Um, the black line was another pass. So, I, And I, I don't use computers. I'm old school. I do it all by hand. So I had to do all these different drawings with registration marks on them so that They'd all line up and print um, on the same in, in, with the same registration. So it was a very involved and difficult printing process, along with the uh, design. But uh, so it, it, Gil wanted something. He goes, "Look, I'm a guy from Oklahoma trying to make uh, a world class Napa Valley wine, and so nobody knows me and nobody knows the, the brand. So I want you to design something that <clears throat> will pop off the shelf and that people will want to hold it in their hand." So that's where I came up with the embossed leaves and the, and the gold borders so that you could recognize it far away. And it, back in the 79, it was the only label that wasn't square or rectangular. So it automatically popped. And, uh, I love it. So in that regard, it was, uh, it was just, you know, I hit a home run the first time at that. <laughs> How about that? And you're a baseball guy. Hey, folks, stick around. I got Tom Rodriguez the uh, with Art Divino, an artist and a winemaker out of Mendocino, California. Stick around. I'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Two regular guys separated by 20 years and a full head of hair. Mark Lee and Van Camp. Weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570. KVI. KVI. Want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for round two. And I hope some of you are heading out to the auction of washies and wines out in Woodenville. Spectacular night to uh, help out uh, the Washington State uh, University Viticulture and Enology uh, School, uh, and also the Uncompensated Care of Children's Hospital. Um, and it takes uh, it takes a village and it uh, to help people in the world, uh, and it takes an artist to make a label look cool. And I have an artist here online. It's Tom Rodriguez with Artavino. Uh, we're talking about his days. Uh, um, well. Learning about wine, baseball, uh, winemaking, and of course the world of art uh, is an old school cat. So with uh, uh, I like to think it's more deco. This is what kind of makes me think of. So Tom, we're talking about your winemaking chops. You bought a winery 19 years ago. Uh, when did you think you perfected it? Well, actually, um, you know, I'm 
I get I get lucky. Um, <laughs> our 2001 vintage. I still we have a library. I keep wine from every vintage and the Montage, which I call, which is a Cabernet Merlot blend, it's a Bordeaux style wine, is drinking really, really well right now. It's like liquid velvet. So our first year in our, our 2001 Chardonnay got a 93 in the wine enthusiast. Um, so I, I, I'm really focused when I when I uh, make wine and also do my art. So I pay real close attention to detail, and I I pick my grapes based on seed color, not sugar content. Really? The old school guys would pick on October 4th because that's when their dad picked and that's when their grandfather picked and that's what you did. Well, nowadays, uh, winemakers are like chefs. I mean, you can give take five rows of a vineyard and give five different winemakers that fruit picked on the same day and you're going to get five different wines. So um, my style is to walk through the vineyard starting about two weeks before harvest taste the fruit from all different parts of the cluster and, and the shady side, the sunny side, <clears throat> spit the seeds out and then take a, and, and look at the color of the seed because in the heat, your sugars are going to spike. And in the old days, you'd pick on sugar content because that would equal the alcohol. And the and nowadays, you've got, uh, you know, cool nights here in the Anderson Valley that will drop the sugar. And, but the, the night, the, the, the thing that gives my wines, a really good aroma and a nice finish, and that's what I'm, I'm shooting for, is the ripeness of the fruit. Excellent. Uh, when, you pick it, when you pick it unripe, your acidity is going to be higher. You won't have that nice long finish, um, and your aromas can, be, can vary uh, slightly. So ripe fruit gives you a delicious aroma and a nice long finish. I've got so the 27. Great. I've got the 2017 Estate Chardonnay here, and uh, I think this is really delicious. It's uh, it's it's crisp yet soft. Um, tell me about your winemaking style here. Okay, first of all, it's, like I said, starts in the vineyard. This is the uh, the old Winty clone, which was planted back in the 70s and early 80s, which was when this vineyard was planted in the early 80s. It's a low yielding fruit. It only gets two to two and a half tons per acre. Where your seven six seven nine Chardonnay clones now go from six to eleven tons an acre, which growers want because they want the tonnage, winemakers want the quality. So I lucked out by having this clone in the vineyard when I bought the place, and so how I make it is a French style called surly, where we uh, whole cluster press, meaning we put the fruit in the press on the stem. We don't destem it at, at all, and um, and then we press off the juice. The juice gets pumped into a tank. The tank is chilled down. The heavy leaves follow us to the, to the, to the bottom. And then we rack it off um, into, uh, or, or we inoculate it in tank and then rack it in, into barrel. And we mean by inoculation is add the yeast and nutrients and then immediately put it into barrel, leaving about three inches of head space at the top of the barrel. And then we let it ferment in the barrel. And we use about 25% new oak. I use the Cote d'Or oak from France. It's all 100% French oak. And um, and we let it go through uh, the fermentation, and once that happens, then we uh, we top it off, and and then we let it go through natural malolactic secondary fermentation, which transfers the malic acid to lactic acid, and so it, it gets that creamy mouthful versus the um, green uh, and apple you'll feel tartness. that in a couple of years. I mean, our Chardonnay's age. <clears throat> I had a 2007 the other night. It's fantastic. So. Our Chardonnays age really nicely. They're made like a white burgundy. As long as they're cellar properly, they'll last because the acidity is there, but also you have the pH. And But the alcohol tends to be, you know, over 14% alcohol Chardonnays. 
Um, but you don't you don't really feel the heat of the alcohol. <laughs> Not until that second or third glass, I'm sure. Um, it's delicious, <laughs> and I like that you're using some uh, Burgundy oak. Uh, of course, that's what they do uh, in uh, the areas of Merceau, Puni Moche, and Chasson. Um, let's talk about yeah. this Pinot Noir, Anderson Valley. That's part of Mendocino. Um, is this a specific clone of Pinot Noir, the 2014? Well, it's two clones. It's a 667, or actually three clones, 667, 66, uh, or 116, and a pomard, and it's field blended, um, and we do a lot of whole cluster fermentation where we just put the whole clusters right from the, from the picking bin into the fermenter, and then I open up my um, crushing wheels on the crusher and destem about two-thirds of a a ton, and I leave a, a third of a ton on, on cluster and, and de-stem about two-thirds. And, and then I, uh, I don't inoculate it. I use native yeast. It's only the yeast on the fruit, which is that gray. You know, when you look at the cluster, bloom. you see that little gray, gray film on it. Yeah, the bloom. So that's the native yeast. Yeah. And um, so I try to keep do that with the pinots because, you know, pinot is the princess of all grapes. It, it, first time I made it, I... I thought I screwed it up because, you know, it smells like juicy fruit when you're crushing it, and then you put it, uh, you ferment it outside, and then it goes into barrel after it's been pressed. And a month later, I come back to it, and I smell, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, did I, did I leave my gym socks in here? <laughs> and, I mean, it just goes through these funky periods where, you know, my first vintage of Pinot was, uh, it was 2002, and I'm like, oh, my God, what, what am I doing? And then about four months later, it all comes around. So it, it goes through some pretty funky periods, and you could screw it up. If you're not uh, paying attention, it needs a lot of attention. Well, I took a sip. It's and definitely by the, way, the Chardonnay is surly, where we we stir the lees in the barrel for about six to eight months. Betonage. Um, yeah, exactly. excellent. Well, I took a sip of the uh, of the Pinot Noir, and I, I love your Chardonnay. It's really delicious. I like that it's crisp yet soft, and it has uh, a great expression. There's not a lot of new oak on that, uh, and it definitely. Um, creamy and seductive. Uh, the Pinot Noir, it has uh, that, that freshness, that juicy note with, the, uh, let's say, the whole cluster. And you have some uh, mild complexity with uh, the different uh, clones, of course. And um, you said gym socks. But remember, gym socks also have native yeast. So it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> You're a funny man, Chris. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, now yeah. we're on to one of the popular grapes of California. It's called Zinfandel. And uh, tell me about this. This is from Largo Ridge. Largo Ridge, yeah, they're over on between Hopland and Ukai off the 101, uh, sort of a south-facing bench. Um, uh, Randy Ruddick is a farmer. He's an incredible farmer. They've been farming his family up over there for over 120 years. He grows Cabernet and, and, and Chardonnay. And uh, so I, I've been using that fruit since 2005, and I just I love the vineyard. I love the way he farms. Um, again, we go out and, and taste the fruit, and we choose the day we're going to pick it. Um, and Zinfandel, as it turns out, a lot of people think it's a California grape, but Zinfandel originated in Croatia. That's right. Uh, Krajelnik Kastelensky, also called Tribadag. Exactly. You're the man, dude. So, um, But it's, it's been a fun wine to make. Uh, we've won best varietal uh, in, the, in the world in the international wine competition on their 2007 vintage. Um, our first finish, 2005, we won five gold medals. This uh, 16 that you tasted, we won a double gold in the Chronicle tasting. and So it's a popular wine. People love it, and it just sort of uh, mixes it up a little bit. Because this side of the hill, um, where I am, is more Pinot and Chart. We're on the other side of uh, Mendocino County. It's more inland. You get the warmer grapes, the Cabs, Merlot, Zins, Carignan. 
um, you know, other other varietals like that. It's a delicious wine. I like that it has just enough of that brambly uh, berry flavor, um, but the alcohol seems to be in check. It's not syrupy sweet, and uh, of course, with Zinfandel, you get a little uneven ripeness, so you have some great acidity in there. You don't necessarily have to acidify or correct it. Uh, these are really delicious wines. How many wines do you make in your total portfolio? Well, well, it depends upon harvest because I'll pick up some grapes from some people that may have some left over. But I've made as much as 15 varietals. Um, right now, I've got one, two, three, four. I've got four Pinots, two Chardonnays, uh, the Zin. We have a blend called Cowboy Red, which is Merlot Zin and Carignan. Um, we have a couple late harvest wines. We have a port that we ate 17 years in a barrel. Um, we have a late harvest Symphony and Flora blend that was 11 years in a barrel. Um, so, it's, you know, it's you know a dozen different wines right now. Um, but we're focusing on Pinots and Chardonnays um, locally, estate stuff. And then uh, one of my neighbors moved into the cannabis space, and he had a beautiful Pinot vineyard. And I said, what are you going to do with that? And he says, I don't know. I said, why don't I lease that? (laughs) We've been leasing that, and he's losing his ass in the cannabis world right now. Ah, yeah, oversupply. Well, it's just the regulations are so steep for yeah, these farmers. It, it's really sad. Hey, quickly, uh, we're just going to uh, end this segment here, but give me a uh, website that we can find more about Art Tavino. Okay, our uh, website is maplecreekwine.com, and my art site is Tom tomrodriguezstudio.com. Uh, and that's Rodriguez with a G-U-E-S. Exactly. Wow. Hey, man, real real treat, real pleasure to chat with you. I love your wines. I think your labels are really cool. And I uh, hope to get down to Mendocino at uh, Wine Song one of these days. Tom Rodriguez, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. I got one plug for you. Quickly. My labels are produced in your town, in the Richmark label. Ah, I love in, them. In I, Seattle. I think so they're, they're on Pine Street. Yeah. That right on. Thanks, Tom. He's live, he's local, he's all Northwest. Lars Larson, weekdays noon to 3, talk radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle Pacific Northwest, welcome back. Time for our third segment. Now we're going to turn the dial, if you will, uh, turn the tree uh, to apples and pears and uh, cider. Oh, my. I have Miss Emily Ritchie, who is the executive director of the Northwest Cider Association. We're going to talk about, uh, well, kind of what we do really well up here in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, Idaho, Montana. So, Emily Ritchie, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Happy Saturday night. A happy uh, summer Saturday night. We finally waited all this time for uh, the sun to shine in August. It was, uh, you know, we have January. Then we have February, July, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for August. That's right. Hot August. Uh, so fun. Let's talk about cider. Um, well, first of all, the Northwest Cider Association is what, seven years old now? We're nine years old. Nine. Yeah. We're a big girl now. Okay. How about <laughs> that? Yeah. Um, well, congratulations on that. You uh, represent how many different organizations, how many different uh, entities? So there are probably about 150 cider makers now in those Pacific Northwest states and British Columbia that you just mentioned. There, It's exploded from about seven when we were founded in 2010. So we've seen enormous growth. 
How long have you been uh, associated with the organization? I've been around for four years now. Okay. Yeah. And um, how does one apply for such a, a, a position? Are you a cider aficionado? Are you a marketing genius? Are you just uh, the, millen- the, the magic millennial master? <laughs> yeah, you've got to have a lot of different skills. There's a lot of bit of uh, sort of relationship management that goes into my job description. Um, but yeah, my background was um, at the Oregon Department of Agriculture in marketing and um, managing managing certain programs. But I am a huge huge cider fan and I really fell in love with it when I um, when I was in England a few years before starting this position I am dual citizen so I was visiting relatives and um, luckily there's great cider here in the northwest so I could continue working in that sphere with our local makers well very cool it's nice to uh, have those opportunities to follow both what you do well and follow some passion and and some fun I know being in the <laughs> this side of the mic is uh, really fortunate to uh, to have so many people um, with a trillion dollar industry in this in this world right I mean there's so many people there's so many opportunities there's so many adventures there's always a new vintage there's a new style there's a new label uh, and it's it's really exciting uh, of course always in moderation as we like to talk about let's talk about cider styles you said English cider uh, I know a little bit about cider but tell me um, English cider is that a specific style or which is that just sort of a heritage cider um, I think the the jury's a little out on that. There's with the industry being so new here in the Northwest and in the U.S., we're all sort of gradually getting on the same page in terms of terminology. Within England, they would say they have different styles within sort of Somerset versus Herefordshire versus Cornwall. But to which us, are regions though? Those are all regions. Yes. Yeah. So they probably wouldn't call it all English cider. But when we're talking about cider styles to the general public, um, that can, that has a general heritage term. Based on the apples, the British have some really, really gorgeous bittersweet apples and fruit that has been um, modified and uh, grown over the years to create this bittersweet where there's some tannins, there's some sugars, but there's also... Um, acid, and there's a lovely balance. So these are apples that they're using that now we're growing here in the Northwest that um, they don't taste good when you're eating them, right? (laughs) They are fondly called spitters. (laughs) You take a bite and you spit them out. Um, But they make really beautiful cider, and more and more farmers are planting them, and we're seeing more and more varieties out there that are more of these heritage varieties of apples that add a lot of robust character to the finished products. Well, I'm wondering, as uh, nature sort of produces its own defense mechanisms, whether you're a a puffer fish or whatever it is, um, being a bitter apple, does that sort of prohibit or uh, intimidate sort of uh, animals to to eat it? Or Because you think birds are going to eat seeds, but they're they're waiting for the fallen fruit, perhaps. But I don't know. I mean, how does – is that just – Gosh, you're, I'm going to give you a good stare on that one. I don't know. I have not been a bird eating those apples. But what I know is that Washington produces the most um, dessert apples, eating apples, um, out of any other state in the, in the rest of the country. So Washington grows around 60% of the state's apples. And of the country's apples. Of, or of the country's apples in the state, mostly so they're Yakima, Wenatchee Valley area. Sure. Um, and so that's what the majority of cider is made from here in the Northwest. 
Um, they're, you know, like the Fujis, the Galas, the Golden Delicious, those apples. Pink we, Lady. Yeah, Honey Rome, Honeycrisp. Love it. We have a huge variety. So a lot of cider makers have that as the base apple to play around with in fermenting. And then they can decide, do they want to make it more of a, a champenois method, like champagne style ferment in the bottle? Do they want to barrel age it? Do they want to blend it with some of those more rare English style apples we were talking about? So those are like Kingston Black or the Dabonet or the Yarlington Mill, the varieties that you're never going to see in the grocery store for eating, but that will blend well with those apples here. Um, and that you can make a, a really more of a Northwest style cider from that. You know what's interesting is that I know from the agricultural standpoint, you cannot sell wine grapes in a grocery store, but you can probably sell you know cider apples in a grocery store, which seems to be a little bit of a bias there. Well, there's a lot of apples that are actually dual purpose, right? So that would work in a store okay. or in your glass, like the Golden Russet the or Golden the Ashmead's Kernel. Those are those are more heirloom varieties that used to be grown all the time out here and they just aren't as commercially viable. Maybe they brown more when you cut into them or they don't store as long. Or and they so have different pockmarks, russets, right? They right? just don't look as they pretty. They might look more like a potato. And so <laughs> they're not on our shelves as much, but there's some really cool local stores here that will carry them, you know, like PCC or New Seasons, Whole Foods. We Now I'm starting to see a whole variety of them in the fall. So anyone out there trying to ferment uh, cider apples, consider those dual purpose ones too. Wow, okay. I always want to see some Syrah grapes in the store because I think that's really cool. Let's talk <laughs> about other styles of cider. So there's modern style and heritage style, which is the two, basically the two spheres of, of ciders. Of course, heritage would be England, Spain, France, um, probably Portugal and, and other places. No. Yeah, I haven't seen much cider in Portugal. Okay, but yes. throw it out there. Yeah, definitely there's a lot of European countries with some cider heritage to them. Um, even Germany, they have apple wine, right? Apple vine. Apple, yeah, apple yeah, corn. Exactly, yeah. So, um, but the the way the style guidelines and the lexicon that's coming out and we're talking about cider now is, is really based on apple varieties at the moment. So the modern style are all those culinary dessert fruits we were just talking talking about that you see at the store versus the heritage ones that are those bittersweet qualities. Maybe if you think of like a crab apple, that's what you bite into and you get that. And then you chuck it. <laughs> yeah, and then you chuck it. <laughs> um, so the ciders can really be easily um, split into two categories on that. We've got the modern and the heritage, and that goes for perry as well to sure. really confuse you. But um, fermented pear juice, there's those dessert pears that you would eat. Um, versus peri pears are these gnarly, knobbly, hard pears that do not taste good. They never seem to ripen. Beautifully. They, they never <laughs> ripen until like five minutes before you need them. Yeah. Pretty neat. Yeah. So then beyond that, cider styles, we're seeing a lot come out of the Northwest now of innovation and um, trying new things that have not been tried around the rest of the world, right? We see that in coffee or beer or wine here too, um, but definitely in cider, we're seeing folks experimenting with barrel aging, whether it's in a a barrel that held coffee or Syrah or, um, you know, tequila or bourbon. whiskey, bourbon, all of those <laughs> options. We have great local distillers that we can uh, borrow tools from. But then um, hopped ciders were invented here in the Northwest. Really? We, we grow a lot of hops here. Yes, so we do. A lot of folks um, enjoy 
dry hopping ciders especially because there's got that floral, beautiful citrus notes to them without right. the bitterness. Because you already have bitterness in ciders sometimes, so I see that working. Right, and it just it's a really easy sort of porch pounder type drink. A lot of people hear hops and think IPA, right? They think bitter, but um, when you don't boil the hops, they make this really beautiful um, citrusy drink that's that's really easy to go down. Yeah, very aromatic, uh, mm-hmm. and of course you get those citrus notes and it's the hops we have, the mosaics, the Chinooks, the Kent Goldings, uh, uh, what is the, the Citra, Cascade, right? Cascade, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So fun. Uh, what's the website for uh, for to learn more about Northwest Cider? It's nwcider.com. nwcider.com. And I know in September you have an event. Uh, it's it's Washington Cider Week. And I know recently you just had Portland Cider Week. So tell me about Washington. What's the date for Washington Cider Week? September 5 through the 15th. Um, so it's 10 days. It's an extra long week. This is actually it's a baker's our, week. It's a baker's week. It's our ninth annual Washington Cider Week, and it may be the oldest cider week in the country. Um, the Cider Association, that was the first thing we started when we were founded. And it's really, it's really fun. There's something like 70 or 80 events that are being planned throughout the state happening. So you really can't do all of them every night. Um, but there will be cheese and cider pairings. There there will be bike rides. There will be fun tap takeovers. All sorts of things happening. So fun. It's NorthwestCider.com. I've got Emily Ritchie, Executive Director for the Northwest Cider Association. We're going to uh, open some cider when we come back right here on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m., Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for our fourth and final segment. And I have the lovely Emily Ritchie, who is the executive director of the Northwest Cider Association. Uh, Washington Cider Week's coming up September 5th through the 15th. Uh, you should check out the website, northwestcider.com, uh, because you'll have a chance to say it's not only cider, but uh, perry, which is made from pears. And Emily, you brought some perry to studio. Yeah, I brought a really lovely perry that's much more wine-like or champagne-like than most people would expect. So it's from um, Dragon's Head Cider on Vashon Island, so not far from Seattle. And um, they've made this gorgeous drink, which I want to point out, side note, Napoleon thought perry was better than champagne. So... Clearly, he knew what he was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Which one? I thought there were three. (laughs) The original. Come on. (laughs) Um, So this perry is made with a blend of of, um, perry pears as well as seedling pears from a homestead on Vashon Island that's over 100 years old. And um, famous producers in England where perry is really, really a thing, is uh, they say that the the trees really need to be very old, more than 30 years old before you're going to get a great drink. So they've nailed it with this one. Wow. And how tall are some of these trees? I know that when you drive down to eastern Washington, through eastern Washington to get wherever you're going, you'll see some of the... um the orchards, and we're maximizing uh, what we'll call orchard space, right? You got the V, and you're trying to really get for great fruit zones. Um, this is different, though. These are really older trees that no one had cultivated to be a particular maximizing fruit kind of thing. They didn't know about it. Right. So um, those older trees would be called standard trees, and those are planted, um, as you can imagine, an old tree where there's uh, one um 
one stock and then it keeps going one up chunk. one yeah. chunk, right? <laughs> um, and so those those can be you know thirty, fifty feet tall, and they can last that, hundreds of really? years. Really, you've yeah. seen a fifty foot apple tree or pear tree <clears throat> or whatever apple tree in England when they're really, really old. Okay, yeah, I get that. And they can they can produce. I think the oldest one I've heard about is still producing at three hundred years old. Oh my! Yeah, interesting. So you almost got to preserve that for you. Almost want to put it in a uh, a bottle of. Um, you know, pickle it like you would par William, where you've got the pear oh, inside. Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> Maybe it's like. with a distilled spirit in yes, there. Absolutely oh, yeah. gorgeous. Uh, Dragon's Head. This is or on Vashon Island. How many uh, cideries or perries? Do you call it a perry or is it a cidery that makes perry? It, usually, they're the cideries that make perry. Okay. Most cideries make cider and perry, but um, there's a few out there that specialize in perry. This stuff rocks. You, I mean, this is um, room temperature. The acid's medium plus. The palate is round. The texture is round. It's creamy. Um, the pear flavors uh, are almost uh, light Bartlett that go to a citrus note. You get that acid, and it's not cloying. It's definitely dry. Um, it's a very little bit of tannin here, which helps dry that the palate, but you've got the acid and the tannin and the, and the texture. What's the alcohol on this? 8%? My guess is it's 8. around 5? 7. It's 6.3. 6.3? Mm-hmm. Wow! Easy drinker. Oh, easy, totally. And what a great, what a great uh, um, accompaniment for food. Because this can go with a nice a salad with perhaps just a little bit of tomato. Because you got sweetness and acidity in tomato, uh, bib lettuce, goat cheese, things like that. Some of those walnuts. I'm getting. I like here. where you're going. Should we go out for some food now? <laughs> we should. We need to call it in. I could see this working for any. Any part of the meal, like as an appetizer or as a digestive, it drinks really well before you have food. I think it would pair well with your salad or your main course, as long as it's kind of a lighter meat or, or a vegetable. Even fish. Yeah, exactly. And then for dessert, it's got those nice pear notes. So, uh, you know, pear tart or something, right. go for it. Nothing too sweet, though, because you want to be sure it's balanced because this Cheese. is really dry. Cheese is probably <laughs> a better shot. How many uh, cideries are on Bashan? Um, there are three, and I think I heard there's another one in the works to open up. Wow. Okay, so it's great to find that people have this passion, this this energy, this vision of entrepreneurship, of hard work, of the romantic part of just cracking, pulling that uh, crown cap off and just uh, enjoying their the fruits of the labor. Yes. Um, these cideries on Vashon and in the state of Washington are all very innovative, and a lot of them have gorgeous orchards, and they're doing really creative things, um, you know, whether they're growing varieties that you can't find anywhere, or they're foraging from homestead orchards, or they've got, you know, serious apple orchards in the Wenatchee Valley where they can grow, you know, incredible fruit without many blemishes because it's just the perfect weather for apples. Like, Washington just can do it all. We can do it all. And if you want to do it all, you're going to do it on September 5th through the 15th at Washington Cider Week. Now, there was Portland Cider Week. Is Oregon it? Cider I'm Week. sorry, Oregon mm-hmm. Cider Week, yep. which took place all in throughout. June. Yep, it's always in June. And then we have Montana Cider Week coming up end of September into early August or October. Um, so, yeah, there's BC Cider Week in the spring. There's always something you can explore 
throughout the region. If you follow Northwest Cider, either on Instagram or Facebook, I love adding cider into a trip I'm already going to make. So if you're, you know, going up to the Okanagan region for wine, um, throw in some cider while you're there. Wow. Emily Ritchie, uh, Executive Director of Northwest Cider Association, NorthwestCider.com, uh, Washington Cider Week, September 5th through the 15th. Thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks for having me. Hey, Cheers. folks, uh, when you're having uh, wine, cider, beer, cocktails, etc., remember, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers!